0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. We want to look at verses 36 through 44 this morning. No one knows the day or the hour. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Help me to teach accurately, clearly, in a way that is profitable for us as your people. And we commit our study to you now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, note on the overhead, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, as I say. The theme is Christ the King, and we have worked our way down to chapters 24 and 25, the predictions of the King. We're always thinking about what comes next, aren't we? What's the plan? Well, God's got a plan for the future. I mean, it's not like open-ended, like, well, nobody knows for sure. Yeah, somebody does. His name is God. Uh, And what we know of the future is only what He has revealed to us. We never figure it out, you know. The Lord wills we shall live and do this or that, as James says. So we never on our own figure out God or His plan. It says in Psalm 33, 10 and 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. Okay, the world's got their ideas. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. God's got a plan. It's working itself out. Well, as we study prophecy, we find that God's plan for history centers around Israel, Jerusalem, and the Messiah. With a parenthesis emphasis on the church. In the book of Daniel, God gave an overview of his prophetic master plan, as seen in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. There God said that he determined 70 weeks, or 70 units of 7 years, of special dealings in relation to Daniel's people, who are the Jews. Well, that totals 490 years of special dealings with Israel. Now, 483 of those years, 69 weeks, have already been fulfilled. And they were fulfilled to the letter, as seen in Daniel nine twenty-five, in the presentation of the Prince, of Messiah the Prince, at the time of the triumphal entry of Christ on Palm Sunday. In Luke 19, Jesus said to Jerusalem, At that time, this is your day. And that was the time of their visitation. But since they failed to truly recognize, receive, or appreciate Jesus as their Messiah, there has since that time been a long gap period in which Israel has temporarily been set aside. We might say, this is time out, time out on Israel. And we call that the church Age. That's where we live. Time out on Israel, it's the church age. This long gap period essentially corresponds to what we know as the church age. But the the one week, one week, one seven-year period remains to be fulfilled in relation to Israel. When the church is complete, Christ will take his church family out of the world, and then the 70th week will commence with Antichrist signing a seven-year covenant with Israel. This seven-year period is known as the Tribulation Period, with the last half being known as the Great Tribulation, which will come to a conclusion at Christ's second coming to the earth. So, uh, just to chart what we're talking about here, the 70 weeks of Daniel really began uh, with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. 444, 445 B.C. And so then we have 69 weeks. If we take the time frame, it takes us right to the time of the triumphal entry. After uh, the presentation of the Messiah, the Prince, not price, Prince should be the word, uh, we have this gap period. And in this gap period, Messiah will be cut off, killed. Jerusalem and the Temple destroyed, 70 A.D., and the continuation of the time gap, really, really corresponding to what we know as the Church Age. And that's where we live right now. We're in the gap. Uh, 69 weeks, 483 biblical years, has been fulfilled in the presentation of Messiah, the Prince. We're in the gap. One week, the 70th week, uh, remains to be fulfilled. It will begin this covenant with Israel and the abomination of desolation at the midpoint Uh, by the prince who is to come. That is the Antichrist. And so we don't know when this is going to start here. Well, that background brings us to uh, Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 and 25 is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. It is a discourse on prophecy. And it is the last of five discourses given in in the Gospel of Matthew. Tim LaHaye says of this uh, Olivet Discourse... The Olivet Discourse, delivered shortly before Jesus' crucifixion, is the most important single passage of prophecy in all the Bible. It is significant because it came from Jesus himself immediately after he was rejected by his own people and because it provides the master outline of end-time events. I concur with that. In Matthew 24, 3, the disciples asked Jesus about the sign of his coming and the end of the age. The remainder of the chapter is the answer to this question. Jesus begins by connecting end time sign events to the 70th week of Daniel prophecy as seen in, De- in Matthew twenty four fifteen. So in Matthew 24, 4 through 35, Jesus is dealing with the 70th week of Daniel that climaxes in his return to the earth. But then we come to Matthew 24, 36. And as we do so, we find a great transition takes place. And unless one gets this transition right, what Jesus has to say will be misunderstood. And it is right here that I believe many of my dispensational brethren have messed up in a major way. I love my dispensational brethren. I am definitely dispensational. But I think they messed up here, largely. Not all of them, but a lot of them. They have failed to see the significance of this transition and therefore missed the essence of what Christ is saying in Matthew 24:36 through 44 Now the Jews to this day as a people group generally have failed to see the reality that the Messiah has two comings. He has a first coming in which he comes to die for the sins of the world. And there's a second coming in which he comes to reign. As those who have seen the truth of New Testament revelation, we see that God's plan involves two comings in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. However, in addition to the reality of two comings, there are also two different phases to his second coming. The first phase relates essentially to the church, and the second phase relates essentially to Israel. And by the way, this explains why the first phase was not dealt with in the Old Testament. That's truth related to to Israel, not church truth. So we come to the New Testament, we now have introduced some new truth related to the church, including the first phase of Christ's second coming. And here is the point I want to stress. Both phases of Christ's second coming... Both the first phase, we commonly call the rapture, and the second phase are both presented in Matthew 24. At least that's my conviction. And Jesus was the first one to present that there are two phases to his second coming. And he does so right here in Matthew 24. That is why I call it the prophetic seed plot of the New Testament. The prophetic seed plot of the Old Testament is Daniel nine twenty four through 27. The prophetic seed plot for the New Testament is Matthew 24. So, uh, second coming, two phases. Uh, we live here in the church age. Phase one is the rapture, the church. This was not revealed in the Old Testament because everything about the church is a mystery in the Old Testament, including uh, the coming of Christ for the church. The second phase is Christ's return to the earth. So, the second coming, phase one, phase two. We wouldn't know this except uh, the New Testament reveals it to us, starting with Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. John F. Hart says, I believe Jesus was the one who first taught and explained the pre-tribulation rapture. And that he taught this in both the discourse and John 14, 1 through 3. Paul, John, and Peter, and perhaps James have all gained many of their insights into the pre-tribulation rapture and the day of the Lord from Jesus' teachings in the discourse. Again, hence why I call it the seed plot, the prophetic seed plot for the New Testament. Now, one of the problems is that many of the early dispensationalists claim very strongly that the rapture is not to be found in Matthew 24. They say it's not there at all. Well, since they saw Israel is so strongly represented in the first half of the chapter, they then argued that the context claims the whole chapter is dealing only with the 70th week of Daniel and Israel, climaxing in the second coming of Christ to the earth. So they didn't see the rapture in Matthew 24 at all. Well, I am going to show you today why I think that view is an error. And why I think that Matthew 24 is the seed plot of prophetic truth developed in the rest of the New Testament, including the truth of the rapture. Now, it seems to me that many of the old-timers in the dispensational camp fell into groupthink. Some of the leaders took a position on Matthew 24, and then they, like dominoes, kind of all fell in line, even though the plain sense of the text leads in another direction. Now, I highly recommend the book titled Evidence of the Rapture, A Biblical Case for Pre Tribulation, with the general editor being John F. Hart. In fact, I brought the book here to show you. I highly recommend this book. Uh, excellent book. Uh, so, yeah. I will refer to Hart a number of times in my message here this morning. In this book, uh, John Hart writes a chapter, Jesus and the Rapture, Matthew 24 in which he strongly argues that dispensationalists need to rethink how they have traditionally handled Matthew 24. And I fully concur with his position, and I will explain why this morning. We now come to Matthew 24, 36, which has a major transitional marker in place, which shifts the focus from phase two of the second coming to phase one of the second coming. It shifts from what can be known in relation to the tribulation period, the climaxes in Christ's second coming to the earth, to what cannot be known prior to his coming at the rapture. So uh, note here, we have a major transition at Matthew twenty four thirty six, Matthew 24, 4 through 35, the subject is the tribulation signs and Christ's post-tribulation coming. Then we have a transition that I will talk about, Peride in the Greek. And the subject following the transition here in verses 37 through 44, is Christ's signless pre-tribulation coming. Now, a footnote on the idea of two phases related to the second coming. Because some want to say, well, uh, you know, the rapture is not really a part of the second coming. I I think it is. I think there's two phases to the second coming. And the reason I think this is because of this. The word coming, uh, parousia, there's several words used for coming, the second coming. But parousia is the one that's used here in Matthew 24. It means coming, arrival, denoting presence. If a dignitary was going to come on the scene and be there in presence, You might speak of his coming in that sense. Now, it's used in reference to the second coming in uh, Matthew 24.3. four three, uh, talks about what will be the sign of your coming. That's the word used there, parousia. And then also in Matthew 24.27, uh, uh, when he is talking about uh, the coming of the Son of Man. Will the coming of the Son of Man be? It uses the same word. And then it's used in reference to the first phase, as we will study today in Matthew 24, 37, uh, will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then 39, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Same word is used throughout here. So hence, parousia, coming, is used in reference to both the first and the second phase of Christ's coming. And it's for this reason I speak of the second coming as having two distinct phases. Well, let's pick it up, Matthew 24, 36. But, but of that hour, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, the words translated here in my New King James as but of are two words in the Greek, peride. And they are sometimes translated as now concerning or but concerning. And this is consistently used in the New Testament as a transitional phrase. Everybody agrees. It's consistently used that way. It consistently denotes a transition to a different but related subject. Uh, Robert Thomas, who was definitely a Greek expert, says, Parida is a frequent device for introducing a change from one subject to another phrase of the same subject or from one subject to another. So consistently, it denotes a transition of one kind or another. Now, Paul often uses this in in his epistles. For example, in 1 Corinthians, as Paul is moving from one topic of correction to another, he consistently uses peride. He does so in 1 Corinthians 7.1, verse 25, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 2, chapter 12, verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1, and verse 12. You see... It's very consistent, him using when he wants to transition to another subject, this is the phrase he uses. Now, notably Paul uses this phrase in transitioning from his discussion of the rapture in First Thessalonians four, thirteen through eighteen, to his discussion of the day of the Lord in First Thessalonians five, one through eleven, showing that they are closely related and yet distinct. So, note on the overhead here, we have the subject of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But then there's a transition as we get to chapter 5. Note the subject is the day of the Lord. But concerning, there's peri The times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So he has changed subjects. They're related, both related to the coming of Christ, in a sense. Uh, There's a a relationship, but there's a distinction. And uh, we note that there. So, we have the same type of transition here in Matthew 24, 36. Only here, Christ is transitioning from talking about the day of the Lord to now addressing the time of the rapture. It's related, but different subject. Namely, the first phase... Of Christ's second coming. Well, to show you that a clear distinctive transition is in view, <clears throat> note that Christ has just been emphasizing what they can know about the second coming to the earth. But now, after this transition, he emphasizes they, what they can't know about his coming. And that only makes sense if there are two different aspects to his coming. So, note, When its branch puts forth leaves, you know it's near. When you see all these things, know it is near. And then we have the transition of verse 36. And after the transition, note, but of that day and hour, no one knows and did not know. Watch therefore, for you do not know. If the master of the house had known, the son of man is coming hour, you do not expect. How much more plain can it be? You cannot know and, and know at the same time, right? You don't say, well, I don't know, but I know. Uh, no, it's one or the other. This only makes sense if Christ is talking about two different aspects of His coming. One can be known when it is at, when it is at hand, and one cannot be known. Only the pre-tribulation rapture really makes sense here. And the language of peridea is a clear linguistic marker that such a transition is in place. Now, the old school of thought claiming that Christ is continuing to describe conditions related to the second phase of his coming claims silly things. Like, while they might know the general time frame, they will not be able to know the exact day or hour. Well, I would argue that once they get into the tribulation period, they might well be able to figure out the exact day that Christ is going to come at his second coming to the earth. Well, how might they know? Well, we know from Revelation 13, 5, that at the midpoint of the tribulation the Antichrist will be given absolute prevailing authority to continue for 42 months. On the Jewish calendar, that is 1,260 days. Furthermore, we know from Revelation 12.6 that Israel will be preserved during these days in a special place prepared by God. And the text says that this will be in place for exactly 1,260 days. Not 1,260 and 59, or 1261, but 1260, with precision. Well, if Antichrist is going to have absolute sway for exactly 1260 days, the last half of the tribulation period, then what is going to happen on day 1261? In at least seven different places the Bible indicates that the Antichrist's sway over God's people will be for exactly three and a half years or 1,260 days. Now, I'm no mathematician, but even I can figure out that if the Antichrist has exactly 1,260 days of absolute domination over God's people from the time he goes into the temple and declares himself to be God well, then even I can figure out that something is going to happen on day 1261. What is that going to be? Well, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder. It's like, not like I figured this out. It's like God has told us. The Bible plainly tells us what will bring the rule of the Antichrist to an end is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And here's how we know this. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, talking about the Antichrist, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. This is what brings the rule of Antichrist to an end. It's not like a major transition. Bang! He's done on day 1261. What will bring the Antichrist to an end after his reign of terror for 1260 days is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, on day 1261. So I take it that in the tribulation period, this can essentially be calculated to the exact day, if you know what the Bible has to say. Therefore, what Christ is describing in verse 36 through verse 44 cannot be talking about his second coming to the earth. My view is that Christ here transitions to talk about his coming in the rapture. Now, it is noted that God consistently sets specific dates for His program related to Israel. And that's true. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham that his descendants would be strangers in a foreign land for 400 years, which was fulfilled in Egypt. In Jeremiah 25, the Jews were told that they would be in captivity in Babylon for exactly 70 years. Fulfilled. In Daniel 9, 24-27, we are given specific dates related to God's prophetic program for Israel, including precisely when the 70 weeks would begin. The timing before the presentation of Messiah the Prince, the start of the final 70th week, the middle of the week, and the conclusion of the week. We see very specific dating all the way through in relationship to Israel. But in contrast... The church has no dates. When you start mixing Israel and the church, you've got a mixed up problem. The church began suddenly and signlessly, and it will conclude the same way. After the resurrection, Jesus specifically told the disciples, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which your father has put in his own authority. The church is not given dates or signposts like Israel is. The second phase of Christ's coming is Israel-oriented and has specific dates attached to it. The first phase of Christ's coming is church-oriented and has no dates attached to it. And that's where we are. When Christ says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, I believe he's talking about the rapture. The first aspect of his second coming. No one knows when that will happen. I'm sincerely hoping it happens in this sermon. Wouldn't that be a great amen? But we don't know. Even the language of an hour doesn't really apply to the second coming to the earth. Because you see, that will be a protracted, drawn-out event that happens very gradually. Evidently taking place over many hours. We know it will be similar to when he gradually ascended to heaven as seen in Acts chapter 1. We know that when Christ comes back to the earth, every eye will see him, as it says in Revelation 1.7. And we know from Revelation 19 that when the heavens are open and Christ begins his descent to the earth, that there will be enough time for Antichrist and his forces to gather together, quote, to make war against the coming Christ. So what I am saying is that the description of the hour doesn't seem to really apply to his second coming to the earth, because it will transpire over a protracted amount of time and not necessarily suddenly at just one appointed hour. This description of what no one knows the day nor the hour really only fits the pre-tribulation rapture. And the language is strong in saying that not even the angels know the timing, only the Father. Now, some have struggled with Mark thirteen thirty-two. Uh, where Jesus is recorded as saying that even he as a son does not know the timing. However, this is easily explained, even though we can't completely comprehend the mystery. Christ in his incarnation set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. In his state of humility, he depended fully upon the Father and only operated under the direction of the Father as the servant or the slave of the Father. As it says in Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself and was made in the likeness of men. And as it says in Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. That could never be said of deity. This is only possible in terms of his humanity, and yet he remained fully God as well. This is a great mystery. We do know that in his high priestly prayer the night before he was crucified, Jesus asked the Father to glorify him, quote, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So clearly he had set aside his glory in the incarnation. Yes, his glory in a veiled sense was on display, but that full glory that he shared with the Father was now to be brought back into place upon his resurrection and ascension. So the answer is that in his incarnation, at this point, the Father had not revealed it to the Son. But certainly in the exaltation of his glorification, the Son now again shares in the full glory of knowing all things, just as he did before the foundation of the world. Jesus continues, verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so will also the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus here confirms the historical reality of Noah and the truth of a universal flood as recorded in Genesis. Now, people that don't believe in, a, in the biblical story of Noah and the ark really have a problem with Jesus, too, because he affirmed it. Conditions prior to the rapture will be similar to what they were in the days of Noah. Now, yes, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, but the people didn't take him seriously. And so it will be in the last days before the rapture. Second Peter 3, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where? Where's where the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. In the last day... Scoffers will mock the idea of Christ coming again. And they willfully forget the truth of the universal flood in Noah's day. Now the evidence is so powerful that no scientist, if he is really honest to God, could deny the evidence for a universal flood. It is so powerful that one must willfully reject it. You see, fossils are everywhere. You see, there are billions and billions of them. They are found on every continent, even on the highest of mountains. Fossils are the result of rapid burial. That's how you get fossils. They are encased remains of once living things that were suddenly buried in layers of rock. How did this rapid burial happen all over the world? Some fossils still have soft tissue, by the way, showing they were buried merely thousands of years ago and not millions. Uh, This rapid burial all over the world speaks of catastrophic circumstances. How could billions of creatures be entombed rapidly all over the world? The most consistent and logical explanation is the one the Bible gives, namely the global flood as recorded in Genesis 7 through 8. God allowed the flood to cover the entire world in a catastrophic event that killed all the air breathers except those on the ark. As the waters rose, they covered the mountains and buried billions and billions of creatures and plants in the sediments they deposited. Now, atheistic science wants to deny the reality of the Genesis flood, but the evidence of it is overwhelming there are billions and billions of reasons to believe it happened as seen in the fossil record. Well, those mocking in the last days, based on the idea that life is uh, proceeding without any evidence of divine intervention, that's why they mock. Everything just continues as, as it has been. This is how it was in the days of Noah. And this is how it will be in the last days before the rapture. That's where we live, by the way. But divine intervention will be on full display in the day of the Lord's judgments. I mean to tell you. Verse 38. For as it was in the days before the flood, before the judgment came, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. What is being described here is life is normal. No thought for God. No concern about coming judgment. No signposts to speak of. Yes, you got Noah the preacher doing really something really stupid over here. Never rained before and he's building an ark. You talk about dumb. That's dumb. According to the world's thinking. The emphasis at this point is not on great immorality or violence even, but rather on normalcy and indifference. This is secular indifference. The great evil here was being immersed in everyday life with no regard or thought for God or coming judgment. They were clueless. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating, right? You're going to lunch today, right? Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. These are the normal activities of life. And they are gifts of God to be enjoyed. However, even in our eating, nothing is to be received without acknowledging God in thanksgiving, as we see in 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you want to offend God, just go on living life as if he doesn't exist. Just just leaving God out is what we call godless. And he doesn't appreciate the silent treatment. It is amazing how many, even professing Christians, carry on like practical atheists with a self oriented life with no real thought for God. As it was, so shall it be, and so it is. They carried on with this indifference until the very day that Noah entered the ark. That was the day of judgment, and that day everything changed. I'm sure you've probably seen this before. Noah looked like a fool until it started to rain. Keep building. Now let me ask you, let me ask you, does the description here in verses 38 and 39, does that really fit the day of the Lord as described in the book of Revelation? How can one sincerely believe that the people in the tribulation period will carry on with life as normal, with no thought about God or judgment. You have to wonder, have you really read the book of Revelation? Really? In the context of the seal judgments, what is going on in the world? You know, the first ju- seal judgments, are the first of a, of a series, of, of three series. In Revelation six fifteen and 17, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and every slave, and every free man... The whole of society hid themselves in the caves in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Let me ask you. Does that sound like life is normal? Hey, we're having a, we're having a dinner party over here. Uh, we've Got a wedding to go to. Uh, this is not life as normal. This is hiding in the rocks. Does this sound like they're oblivious to what is happening? No, they know what's going on. How about in the context of the, the trumpet judgments, which follow the seal judgments? What's life like under the trumpet judgments? We'll all find out. Maybe here we go. Revelation nine twenty. Not not us as the church, but anyway, I'm talking to the audience here. Uh, Revelation nine twenty. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons, idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Again, huge amount of people dying here. Not business as usual. Not going about the normal affairs of life. Bold judgments. Revelation 69, Men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God. (laughs) They get it. God's behind this. This is the day of the Lord. His Lordship's on full display, front and center. They're blaspheming the name of God and say, well, I have no idea where that's coming from. No. They know. They blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent to give him glory. Does this sound like life as normal? That they are oblivious to what is happening? No. Emphatically, no. In Revelation 6.8, we find that one-fourth of the world's population will die under the fourth seal judgment. Under the sixth trumpet judgment, a third of mankind will die, as seen in Revelation 9.18. That accounts for half of the world's population right there. And we haven't even gotten to the most severe judgments, as seen in the bull judgments. Isaiah 24.1, in speaking of this coming day of the Lord judgment, says, The Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. The inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. And yet we are to believe that they are just oblivious and carrying on with life as normal? How in the world can anyone honestly believe that people will carry on with life as normal in the day of the Lord? Until the second coming of Christ. That is, in my view, to deny the plain sense of everything that is written about the day of the Lord. I submit to you that Christ here in Matthew 24, 36-44 is describing the time before the day of the Lord judgment hits, not the time after the judgment has fallen upon the earth. Then life will be anything but normal for the whole of mankind. John Hart says, Jesus comments, Men will be fainting from fear and the expectation of the things that are coming upon the world. Luke 21, 26. This is not life as usual. The most transparent meaning of the days of Noah illustration is that just as normal but unsuspecting lifestyles existed prior to the great judgment of the flood... So two normal but unsuspecting lifestyles will exist prior to the sudden onslaught of the day of the Lord judgments and the rapture of the church. Verse 39. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will it be, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So the lost in the world in the world of Noah's day, had no idea that the judgment of the flood was about to hit them until it started to rain. This is how it will be when Jesus comes at the rapture. The world is clueless. You know, I'm a raving fanatic. You know that, right? Fellow raving fanatics, you know that. As already established, the world will know full well that God's judgment is upon them during the day of the Lord, which precedes Christ's Second coming to the earth. So I already pointed out in Revelation 6, 17, they cry out, The great day of His wrath has come. It is the world prior to the first phase of Christ's second coming that will be living life as normal and will be completely overtaken by surprise at the coming day of the Lord's judgment. The description here is that of being taken by Surprise. Being taken in judgment by surprise. Even as the the people in Noah's day were taken by surprise. They were clueless until it hit. That describes the beginning of the day of the Lord as seen in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. Not the end of it. So, we live here in the church age. This is what takes the world by surprise. This aspect of the second coming. Not this one. <laughs> there, there is so much sign activity here. This is not going to take... I don't know how anybody could be taken by surprise by that. Again, John Hart says, Would Jesus use a description of casual lifestyles in Matthew 24, 37-39 to communicate what the world would be like when, quote, there will be great a great tribula- tribulation? Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be? He says... This seems most unlikely. I really think he could have said it stronger. The flood of Noah's day corresponds to the time leading up to the sudden arrival of the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel, and the pre-tribulation rapture. Verse 40, 41. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Now the question here is, who is taken and who is left? Now, the view that doesn't see the rapture here in Matthew 24 claims that the taken here corresponds to the took them all away in judgment as seen in verse 39. So this view says that those taken in verses 40 and 41 are taken in judgment. while those who are left are the saved who are left to go into the kingdom. The problem with that view is is that the wording is different. You see, the word took, ario, in verse 39, has a sense of being taken in violence. If Christ wanted to communicate this same nuance in verses 40 and 41, we would expect that he would have used the same word. But he didn't. Instead, he used a different Greek word for taken. The Greek word, paralambano. And he used this word in both verse 40 and 41. Now, it is true in some contexts it can be used in a negative way, but the overwhelming majority of the time it's used in a very positive sense. The Greek word paralambanō means to intimately take or to take to oneself. Again, John Hart says the thought is always one of a accompaniment and almost always in a positive sense, that is, for close fellowship. The word is overwhelmingly used in a positive sense. Paralambano is used of taking a bride in Matthew one twenty. It's used of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17.1. It's used by the Lord in John 14.3 where he promises to come again and receive, there's the word, Paralambano, his people unto himself. This is the very same word used here in Matthew 24, 40, and 41, and therefore very significant. But also note the word left used here in Matthew 24, 40, and 41 is the Greek word aphemi, which consistently has a negative connotation, meaning to abandon. For example, in John 14, 18, Christ says, I will not leave aphemi, you orphans. So here's what we have. Conclusion of the matter, did not know till the flood came and took, negative, Ario, took violently them all away. So will the coming of Son of Man be, then two will be in the field, one will be taken, Pearl and Bano, to take with, and the other left, Ephemi, abandoned. Two women will be granted the meal, one will be taken, Pearl and Bano, to take with, and the other left, abandoned, Ephemi, abandoned. Therefore I understand the taken in Matthew 24:40 40 and 41 to refer to those taken in the pre-tribulation rapture while those left refers to those abandoned to the day of the Lord's judgment. In my mind this is the most straightforward and consistent view in light of both the overall usage of the terms and the context. The sense of being taken in the rapture fits perfectly with the parallel language described describing the rapture in John 14, where Christ promises to come again and receive us to himself. And it fits perfectly with the idea of the coming of Jesus at at the rapture means deliverance for God's people, but also surprise judgment for the lost world. Let me make a footnote here. It is ironic that dispensationalism is known for dealing with prophecy in a very literal, normal fashion. But here in Matthew 24, some want to claim that the normal life pattern being described should be taken figuratively. Thus, they end up really, in a sense, allegorizing the text at this point instead of taking it in its normal, straightforward sense. Now, one of the arguments that those who claim the rapture is not found in Matthew 24 is this. They claim the book of Matthew is very Jewish in orientation and therefore does not deal with church truth. However, in response, it is pointed out that Matthew is the gospel that specifically introduces church truth as seen in chapter 16, verse 18, and again in chapter 18, verse 17. And certainly the Great Commission at the end of the book in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is given to the church and not to Israel. And I would point out that after the transition of peridah in Matthew twenty four thirty six, Israel is no longer mentioned at all in this immediate context of Matthew twenty four thirty six through forty four. Yes, verses four through thirty five thoroughly Jewish in orientation, but not after the transition. Well, this argues for complete consistency in seeing Matthew twenty four thirty six through forty four as dealing with the rapture instead of dealing with the second coming of Christ to the earth. Application, verse 42. Watch therefore, watch, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. This is where we get the idea of imminency. Again, John Hart says, Since in most contexts, and especially prophetic contexts, to watch stresses imminence, the use of to watch is most appropriate for the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, not a post-tribulation return of Christ. Now, when we talk about uh, the coming of Christ being imminent, we are talking about the rapture, which could happen at any time. All the way through the New Testament, the coming of the Christ for the church is consistently presented as being imminent, which is why we say perhaps today. The Thessalonians were saved, and what did they do? Well, they were saved to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, we as believers are not waiting to be delivered from the wrath of hell. Salvation is already a reality. Rather, as God's people, the church, we are waiting for Jesus to come and deliver us from the time of wrath, the tribulation period that is about to come upon the earth. We are not waiting for the Antichrist. We are not waiting for the tribulation period. We are waiting for the Christ. We are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, once the signposts of the tribulation begin, then Israel and all Bible students will be able to know when the Lord is coming. But the church does not know, which is why we are told to be ever vigilant in watching. The coming of Christ for the church is imminent, perhaps today. Verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. It is Jesus who first introduces the idea of his coming as being like a thief coming in the night. You see, the Old Testament prophets never spoke of Christ coming in this way because they only dealt with the second phase of his second coming the rest of the new testament builds on this analogy paul john and peter all borrow from jesus in this regard which is one reason again i say matthew 24 is the prophetic seed plot for the rest of the new testament now thieves as we talked about in children's moment come without warning they come without signs they come without a heads up And this fits perfectly in illustrating how Christ will come before the tribulation period at the rapture of the church. It will come unexpectedly because there are no clear signposts to indicate its arrival. Yes, we see the day coming generally in that we see the last day's trend of apostasy. But there are no definitive signposts. So in terms of the rapture, mm, preceded by no signs. It's always imminent. It could happen anytime. All kinds of signs, preceded by many signs. This aspect of His second coming, but not this one. This is where we live. We're awaiting the rapture. Now it is common for some dispensationalists to say that the rapture is completely disassociated from the beginning of the day of the Lord. And they argue, therefore, that there may be a gap, perhaps a large gap, between the rapture and the start of the day of the Lord which begins with Antichrist signing a seven-year covenant with Israel. Well, I don't believe in this gap theory. I believe the rapture takes place and immediately history segues into the day of the Lord's judgment. A key reason for believing this is that here in Matthew 24, 43 and 44, Jesus illustrates that his coming will be like a thief in the night. And then as we turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, we find Paul saying that the day of the Lord also comes as a thief in the night. What is true of the one is also true of the other. Because in fact, they are very closely connected. You can read it there. We already read it. The master knew what hour the thief would come. So the son of man... Is coming in an hour you do not expect. You yourselves know the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Both the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord come as a thief in the night. So I take it that the coming of Christ at the rapture and the coming of the Lord are like two sides of the same coin. The coin is the coming as a thief. On the one side of the coin is the coming of Christ. On the other side of the coin is the coming of the day of the Lord. They are distinct, but yet closely related, and the one segues into the other. We also see this in two other ways in this section. We see in verse 36, Christ there introduces the coming of that day, singular. The Old Testament prophets consistently referred to the coming day of the Lord, judgments that culminate in Messiah's second coming as that day. As did Paul, use this language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But here, Jesus also ties the coming of that day with his coming, as seen in verse 37. So again, we have the single coin of that day. On one side of the coin, we have that day of Christ's coming. On the other side of that coin, we have that day of the Lord's judgment. They are distinct and yet closely related as the one ushers in the other. And there is one more illustration in this text. In verse 38, we find that people are carrying on with life in a normal way until the day that Noah entered the ark. In verse 39, the people did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So the single coin here is the word until. On the one side of the coin is until Noah was safely tucked inside the ark, which corresponds to deliverance via the rapture. On the other side of the coin is until the flood came and took them all away, corresponding to the day of the Lord's judgment. The rapture comes as a thief in the night, as does the day of the Lord. The one ushers in the other. They are like two sides of the same coin. When the one happens, the other follows. It's an immediate segue. Thus, the rapture, in effect, introduces the day of the Lord, which immediately follows on his heels. So here's where we are. We're in the time gap. Rapture is imminent. Could have happened any time in this time. We we don't know how long this gap is. But we're expecting, and on the heels of this will come the 70th week. Again, John Hart says the pre-tribulation rapture is the best exegetical and theological interpretation of Matthew 24, 36 through 44. Verse 44, therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Christ plainly says here, this aspect of His coming will happen when we do not expect it. This is the very opposite, by the way, of verse 33, when He says, when you see all these things, know it's near, it's at the doors. (laughs) Expect it. Now He says, no, coming when you do not expect the only reasonable explanation is that there are, in fact, two phases to Christ's second coming. The first phase is totally unpredictable and unexpected. That relates to the rapture. The second phase is predictable for those who will be alive in the tribulation period. Well, the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. But we have, <clears throat> we have no idea, <clears throat> if I'm going to lose my voice... We have no idea when it will take place. Christ has plainly told us this. So to set any date is wrong. Early in my ministry, in the service, we were singing the song, What If It Were Today? And in that song, it has a line, Jesus will come someday. And I happened to be sharing a songbook with a brother. And when we got to that line, he had inadvertently sang, Jesus will come today. I got to laughing so hard I could hardly finish the song. Now, Jesus may come today, but we don't know. Many have set dates. They've all been wrong. No one knows when Christ will come for the church. That's why we are to live ready. That's, this is what's behind what our motto here, live ready. We get ready by putting our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then we live ready by ever being watchful and vigilant in our daily walk. In 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Paul said to the Corinthian church that they were eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of his letter, he signed off by using an Aramaic word, Maranatha. Here's what Maranatha literally means. It's actually three words put together. Mar, Lord, Anna, Our, Tha, Come. Our Lord come. The early church was looking for Christ to come at any time and therefore greeted one another with this greeting Maranatha, our Lord comes. Perhaps today, live ready, Maranatha. Let's stand and have our closing song.